hello, and thank you for listening to episode three of the Bellingham Story Hour podcast. Uh, This episode is really exciting because all of the stories being told came from the actual theme, Don't Make Me Turn This Car Around. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to recognize, appreciate, practice some gratitude towards the stewards of this land of the Lummi and Nooksack tribes and the Coast Salish people, where we are recording, creating our art, able to live and create community. So every live story share that we have has a theme. On our Instagram, we will request um, ideas for the theme. At our story shares, we have a space for you to um, write down theme ideas. And then every month we post them on Instagram and Facebook and have uh, people vote a little bit to kind of narrow it down. And then the official decision for uh, the story hour theme for that month comes at the first workshop. The following true stories are from our June 2023 live story share at New Prospect Theater. The theme for that story share was Don't Make Me Turn This Car Around. This story is from Allison Green May. It was about a year after college. I was in Davis, California, Northern California, and I had this vision of going to a little town in Vermont. I'd never been to Vermont. I'd never even been to New England. I knew nothing except I'd seen these pictures and all these cows and little silos and barns and the beautiful green mountains. And I'd heard from a friend of mine who'd spent a fall there picking apples and just, you know, the beautiful golden light and the crispy apples, and it just sounded really fun and joyful. And I thought, yeah, I want to go, and I want to work on farms. I want to learn about food, and I want to learn how to do earthy, real things, because all I had to know how to do was in my head. And I thought, yeah, I want to go do this. And so I had a little bit of money, and I had my car, my little Datsun 210 sedan. Loved this car so much. Bought it. A lot of hard work in high school, minimum wage, I hundreds and hundreds of hours, and I bought this car, and it was my little trusty car. And so I was all packed up, had everything important. I was moving. I was just going to go. I knew no one. I was just heading out. I had everything packed in the car that was important to me, all my pictures and journals and my teddy bear. I just various things packed in the trunk of this car, everything. I had tried the trip once before, now it was September, but I had tried the trip back in May, and I'd gotten a couple days out, and then the mountains were really, really tall, and it was raining, it actually was a dark and stormy night, and I was at a payphone booth, they had payphones back then, and the water from the floods was kind of coming across my feet, across my sandals, like these sandals. And I got really scared, and I called my mom. She's like, why don't you come back? We've got this family thing this summer, and you can be part of that. I'm like, okay, yeah. I decided to sort of, I eddied out, and I just kind of went home, and I was part of the family stuff. And it was a really rough time with the family. Um, some things happened that were so difficult that it, it made me question my whole place in the family and my role. It was very bad. And it was kind of, I look back, like, like almost like maybe the, the mama bear or the mama wolf is like biting at the cubs so they'll leave, maybe on some level. But now it was September. I was ready to go. And I had to go because the snow was going to come. I had to get there. I'm in my little car, no snow tires. I had chains. I had to get there. So I've got all my stuff packed. I'm ready to go. I say goodbye to my best friend. I get on the road and I head out 
across Nevada, and it's so vast and open and kind of scary, and it's freedom, and it's I've never been so far from anyone else. And I camp under the stars, and my heart's beating, and I barely sleep. And the next day, I go through Salt Lake City, and I get up into Idaho, and I go all through Utah up to Idaho, and I go to this campground, and it's starting to be fall. The, the cottonwood is shaking everywhere, and the leaves are starting to fall, and nobody was there. They closed down the campground. They turned off the water, but I camped anyway, and I had the whole place to myself, and I sat that night on the hood of my car, something I would never do. I was so particular about this car, but I sat on the car because I was just loving my car, and I was thinking about how this little car had carried me on so many little adventures, and I'd spent so many times just crying in the car. It was the place I could go to cry because things were really hard before, And now we were on this great adventure. And the next day I got into Wyoming and I was on the way to Grand Tetons and I found out that it was going to be 20 degrees. And I didn't have camping gear for that. So I'm like, okay, I got to get to, I got to get up to a youth hostel up in, um, up into Yellowstone where I've heard there's a youth hostel and I'm going to buy some blankets and I'm going to get myself ready for the rest of my camping adventure. So I'm driving up going north, and it's this big T road, this big T. And as I'm driving up, I notice there's a park ranger car behind me. And so I'm kind of thinking, well, i got to make sure I'm doing everything legal, so I put my turn signal on to turn left, and I'm really aware of the speed. He's going the other way. Okay, cool. And then I get up there, and I notice there's a car, a van with an older guy in it, and I guess his wife, two people, he's driving. And I'm like, want to be careful, the cop's behind me. And I look over, and he gives me this little wave. Well, well, I found out later that this was not a wave. He was a dog trainer, and this means stop. And in his panic, he went, stop. So I wave, and I turn. <laughs> and what I found out later, which you should all know, keep this in your handy reference guide for on the road, when you are about to crash into a gasoline tanker truck, you don't actually see it. The only thing you see is the giant red triangle hazard. And that's what I saw as it bore down on me and the accident happened. It crashed right into me. And then my car pushed this way. The the truck turned and it went straight onto the man and his wife in the wagon thing, the van. And I thought it was going to hit head on and so did he. But the driver was very skillful, and he got it. He just nicked the side, and he got the car, the truck to stop. And we all four of us got out, and we were all so shaken, and everybody could walk. My car was dead. It had died saving my life. The front was moved over. It had missed my feet by inches. I called my mom. I told her what happened. She's like, come home. I'll make you a cake. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. I am not turning around. You don't have a car. I'm like, I'm going to get one. You don't have a place to stay. I'll find one. I'm not turning around. I'm going to Vermont. And so I had a pretty treacherous, wild place I stayed. I started out that first night in the, I stayed in the motorhome, the tow truck driver, of the tow truck driver, who assured me multiple times that he was very married. And then... (laughs) The next day, I, I moved into the mechanic's loft, um, and that did not go so well. The mechanic was kind of a creepy guy who thought other things, but I got him cleared up, and I got out of there the next day. All was well. 
But I got into my next place to stay while I waited to figure out what to do was the uh, insurance adjuster's house. She let me stay with her, and she fed me food, and she was so kind. She was so kind and loving, and she took me under her wing like I was like her little mentor person and told me all these lessons about life. And she said, I really legally shouldn't do this, but I want you to see that truck. And so she drove me out to where the tanker truck was parked, and she showed me this big streak of red paint along the toolbox that was this big. The whole thing had a streak. She goes, that's what your car hit, was the toolbox underneath. If you had been an inch or two behind it or in front of it, you would have gone under the car and be dead. That toolbox, that was what you hit. So the next day, I got my own car, because I was going to buy a car, and I wanted to buy a truck, like a pickup truck. And so I get over to Idaho Falls, and I've got like three hours to find and buy a truck. I go to the dealership, I mean, like used car dealership, and this big guy meets me with a big hat and like sunglasses. And I'm like, hey, I'm here to buy a pickup truck. He's like, well, you're never going to find one. They get off the lot as soon as they arrive. This is Idaho. I'm like, come on, come on, help me out. And he's like, no way. And he's trying to sell me all these crappy little cars. And he calls his buddies out. And there's three of these men, and they're all like eight feet tall. And they're all standing there like, you're never going to find a truck like that in this town. They get on the lot, 30 minutes later, they're gone. I'm like, I'm finding a truck. I'm getting to Vermont. I have three hours, and I'm going to do this. Because my heart's calling me. So then I get in the borrowed car, and now i got two hours. And I go to the next dealership. And I pull up and I see a truck. It's a blue Toyota. They're lying. There is a truck. And I run over there and this nicer guy comes out who's also like eight feet tall. And I'm like, I want to buy the truck. How much is it? And he's like, well, six, six times my budget, like $6,000. And he's like, well, we just sold that. I'm like, cool. But the guy's here. He's right behind it. He, he sold it 20 minutes ago. And he's cleaning out his red truck. He's, he's um, turning in. He's trading in. And I saw and knew it was my car. It'd been there 20 minutes. The guy was still pulling things out of it. I'm like, that's it. And it was exactly in my budget from the insurance. And I bought it. I bought that truck. And I got a, a little shell on it, a little bubble shell. And I got snow tires, which admittedly my little Dotson, who died saving my life, wouldn't have been able to drive very far in the Vermont snow and my little teeny tires. But now I had this big truck with big tires. And I can continued on that journey across Kansas and across the country, and I pulled into Vermont as the sun was setting on October 7th that year, and I got my job two hours later, and that little truck and I stayed there three years. So if your heart calls you, wherever it is, however far, you got to go. Thank you. This story is from Caitlin Lazansky. My mom really loves road trips. Um, She drove to Arkansas for a few months. She drove to Philadelphia to do some uh, family genealogy, which she was really into when I was seven, I think. My parents and I drove on an 18-day road trip across 32 uh, U.S. states. for fun, I guess. Um, I don't know. I was seven. I'm not really sure what they thought I would get out of it, but um, it was fun. It was enjoyable, and I saw a lot of um, trees, and it was great. Uh, And my mom loved road trips, and she would take them every chance that she got. Um, 
And this one particular road trip that her and I went on, it was just the two of us. I was nine years old, and it was one of the best road trips of my life. Um, Some important context about my mom and her um, car etiquette. Uh, She loved to drive with all four windows down um, all the time. It could be cracked. Um, Most of the time, they were all the way down, and it was always all four. And I affectionately referred to those as windy storms. Um, And so we would always drive in a windy storm with all the windows down. Uh, she also loved loud music. She lost her hearing years ago, probably from listening to all the loud music, and um, since then would have to play music that was louder than her screaming the lyrics. Um, And so there was always music blasting, uh, and she had a really eclectic uh, sense of music taste. Um, it was, you know, Usher and some of the R&B stuff. It was uh, classic, you know, big band, Glenn Miller, um, all across the board, Clint Black, everything. Um, and the other thing to know about my mom is that she was five foot nothing on a tall day, and um, was a very petite lady. Uh, and I am quite tall, but when I was nine, I was nine-sized. And um, <laughs> she, so the two of us, speeding down the highway, no speed limits were taken into account. We're speeding down um, to California, uh, and we're listening to, uh, we're blasting Taylor Swift's newest album, Fearless, and we're probably looking like two delinquent kids who broke out of summer school, um, because we're just like, you know, driving, singing along, these two short people, Um, and uh, it was such a magical road trip. Um, we were listening, on the, on the way down, um, before you get to California, we were listening to, you know, Taylor Swift's Fearless, the Shrek album, um, and just a bunch of, you know, mixtapes that she had made um, through the years. And then as soon as we hit California, it's instantly to the radio stations, because California has the best radio stations. It's all, you know, R&B and Soul and Funk and Shaka Khan and Al Green and Marvin Gaye and TLC. And so we were listening to that. We were getting our groove on. It was super fun. Um, the windows are rolled down. The wind is blaring in our ears and the sun is out and it's California. Um, and it's California for a very long time after that. Uh, and we are driving to Bakersfield, um, which is a, a place <laughs> in California. Um, and that's about as much as it has going for it. Um, there's a bunch of farmland and cows and stuff, probably, and uh, we're driving down to Bakersfield uh, to meet some cousins that my mom knew from doing all this genealogy, and so they're relations that only she knew about or could articulate, but they were related to us, uh, and this was our first time meeting them, and uh, so we drive to Bakersfield, and we get there, and they have this really nice house, and they're very gracious, they're wonderful hosts, um, and so we hang out with them for a few days. Uh, Donna is, is the main cousin, um, and Donna is like, you know what, uh, this is your last night here, we would love to take you to this, you know, this, this local spot, this local watering hole, um, and we go to this country bar, uh, and it is country to its max, like shit kicker boots, 
cowboy hat, just walls and walls of Jack Daniels and moonshine and whatever else in mason jars. Um, and we are, I have no idea how they let me in because I was nine. Um, but, and this was like a full bar. Um, but I mean, my mom was also very short. So I guess they just kind of thought we were a package deal or something. I don't know. Um, and so they sneak me into this country bar. Uh, I am the only one there who is below the age of like 35, uh, and they book this new up-and-coming country star, and his name is like Hunter Hayes or something, I don't really remember, but uh, he sang his little, you know, twangy songs, and and he spotted me in the audience, because I was the only one anywhere near his age bracket, <laughs> and, and he was like, here's my autograph, for when I'm famous someday, you can have it and you'll remember me. And I do remember him. I mean, I remember him giving, getting this autograph from this stranger. Um, and, and I ha- held on to it. And I think I still have it in a box somewhere. Um, but he was, I just remember how assured he was that he was going to make it someday as this big country star. And that I was going to remember him, this obvious country girl. <laughs> um, and and, and I just, that moment really sticks out to me. Um, so we're line dancing, we're, you know, twirling the night away, uh, the d- adults probably engage in some things that I did not, because I was nine, <laughs> and, uh, and we stay out all night long, and we're supposed to leave the next morning, um, and so we roll back to Donna's house I don't know, maybe five in the morning, and and we're like we're gonna catch a little bit of sleep, um, and then we're gonna hit the road, and uh, and so we wake up the next morning um, at the you know ripe hour of like 11 a.m. probably, and uh, and get in the car, and and Donna comes running out. She's so kind. She's like, I packed you a little snack on the for the the road. Um, here's some. She handed me some like Ziploc gallon Ziploc bags of food. And I was just like, sure, yeah, I'll take whatever. I'll eat it. Um, And so I'm just holding all of these Ziploc bags of food. Uh, And we get in the car and we're driving back up to Washington and it's, you know, rolling hills and deserty whatever of California. Um, It's gorgeous. The sun is shining. We're listening to, um, you know, Shoop, shoop, uh, doop. Which one was that one? Salt and Peppa. Um, and, oh, and also uh, Street Jams, Volume 12, Hip Hop to the Top. Uh, <laughs> very important. That was the best album. Um, and we're driving, and I'm getting hungry. Uh, and my mom, you know, has all the windows down, the music is on. And so I'm just like, okay, I'm going to, like, eat whatever is in this gallon Ziploc bag. And I open it up, and it is barbecue sauce. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm like, great, I love barbecue sauce. Uh, and so I stick my meaty fists in there. And it's a gallon Ziploc bag. Uh, and I just start grabbing these ribs that are in this, swimming in this barbecue sauce. And it is, you know, there's like just this half rack of ribs that were cut up. She was very kind, cut them up for us, um, swimming in this barbecue sauce. And I am going to town. It is so good. They are the best ribs I ever had in my life. The sun is shining. The windows are down. My mom is sitting next to me. We're both having a blast. Um, and I am covered head to toe in, in barbecue sauce. Uh, it is every, I was not, I'm genuinely a, a, a clean eater. 
um, most of the time, but ribs is where the line is drawn. There are no hostages. Like, this is a, an all-out war. I don't mess around with ribs. And so I am covered, literally covered. And the seats in our Honda Accord are, are covered. Um, it's flying out the window because I, <laughs> I left the bag open. Um, so it's everywhere. And my mom is like, okay, this is becoming a bit too much. I don't know why that was the moment that she decided to, to pull it. But because um, she was sitting like right next to me the whole time. But she was like, you know what, this is, this is enough. Um, so she took a quick picture and um, pulled up into a, um, uh, like a gas station. Because um, we were, I don't know, in the middle of nowhere, California. And we could have either driven back another hour and a half or driven forward another 20 hours to get to Washington. So she pulls over at this gas station um, and she's like, I guess I'll try wiping you down. Um, and, but we don't have any towels because we didn't think someone would be covered in barbecue sauce. Uh, so she's just taking other clothes that we have and like trying to wipe off this like sun-baked barbecue sauce. Um, and she's like, you know what, this is, we're, we're done. So she grabs the, you know, the, like, coin machine where you put in a quarter and you get, like, a hose um, (laughs) for, like, 30 seconds or something. Um, And she's, like, stand over there and (laughs) gets out all the quarters and puts them in the machine and just, like, sprays off this barbecue sauce um, and wipes, you know, gets some clothes wet to wipe down the rest of the car um and so I am sopping wet I smell like barbecue sauce um and and she's like just hang out in the sun for a few hours and so we just sit there and we finish the rest of the barbecue the the ribs we finish the rest of the ribs um and some corn on the cob that was also in there um which I didn't know until afterwards because I could have eaten that instead of the ribs but obviously not um but uh, so we were just, you know, snacking and letting the sun dry me out and the car and um, yeah, getting ready to go back. And uh, it was just such an incredible experience. Uh, we drive back, um, we proceed to go on many more road trips through the years. Um, and honestly, like, I don't know if there's anyone else. I can go on a road trip with successfully after having that experience. Like I've gone on graduation trips or, you know, trips with a partner or with a friend. Um, and they just don't, they don't feel the same. Like I, I don't think I've ever gone on a road trip that really resonated as much as it does with my mom. Um, I just don't think there is anyone who can successfully drive with all four windows rolled all the way down, um, full-on windy storm, and have the music loud enough to cover their voice. Um, And I wouldn't want that, because my mom's voice was lovely. So, thank you. This story is from Camarie Chapman. I have this thing where... uh, when I know I'm really good at something, I don't want to let it go, right? Like, I'm like, no, I can do this. I'm sure we all feel that way. Um, and one of the things that I am exceptional at is um, driving a stick shift. I can drive any fucking car. I can drive anything. Uh, when I was 16, I, well, when I was 14, I desperately wanted freedom, right? Who didn't? And um, my dad was really determined that I was going to learn to drive, and that was fine, but I had to drive a stick shift. Fine. 
Uh, and the first thing he taught me to drive in was his 71 Peugeot, and it sucked, um, and it broke down. And then um, he taught me to drive in a 1984 Ford Tempo. Her name was Shirley. Um, and so Shirley Tempo and I learned how to drive together. It was fine. Um, her muffler might have fallen off at one point, and I just cranked the volume because, you know, it wasn't a mechanic. I could just drive it. And I even took my driving test on, you know, in the tempo, in a stick shift. And I remember being so scared that, you know, my leg was shaking on the clutch um, just because I was nervous. And, but eventually this has served me well. Like, I, um, I served in the military, and one of the things that I could do was drive anything. And that was mainly because I didn't have a DUI, so I still had a valid license. But I could really drive anything. I could drive Humvees. I could drive five tons. Like, you name it, and it is, I, I own it. Um, and I've even driven, like, a six-shift Porsche, which was very interesting, and they go really fucking fast, um, for the record, um, <laughs> in second. So I've always prided myself on this. And um, for years, I, I went, and I've always had stick shifts, for the most part, just because that's, like, what we drove. Um, we also had a rotary phone in my house until after I was in the military and bought my parents a push a touch-tone phone. I'm not kidding you. This was the late 1990s, breaching into 2000. We didn't, you know. Uh, so this has always been our thing. And uh, I met the person that would become my spouse when I was driving a 1972 Volkswagen van, and if anybody's driven a 1972 Volkswagen or a Volkswagen in general, um, it's like an Olympic event. Like you're not you're not talking on the phone, you're not dicking around with the radio. You are driving because all of your senses must be there at all times. And um, he's not here, so I'm going to say his name. He knows the story. Uh, Jason is like trying to impress me, and he's like, "Hey, I want to drive your Volkswagen." yeah, sure, go ahead. Do you know where the reverse is? Which is behind first, in case you ever are in a Volkswagen. He's like, yeah, no problem. And he's gets in it, and it's lurching, and he's grinding the gears, and he can't find third, which is a little, okay, it's a little tricky. Tap it in there. It's a Volkswagen, right? Um, and so I, like, make him stop. We're in somewhere by Birch Bay. I don't know. And I make him just stop and get out of the driver's seat. And I take over and shove him in the back. Um, And, you know, I didn't know this was going to be the person I was going to marry, but I was really pissed off about it. So it's fine. We we have this great relationship together. I, I eventually bought a 1999 CRV. I know, I'm moving up in the world. Also a stick shift. And he finally says, um... I just, I can't drive stick shifts. Like, I just, like, they irritate me. I don't want to be in a hill. I'm not going to do it. And so he buys an automatic, this little Toyota truck with an automatic, and I'm so ashamed, but whatever. So this is our life, right? This is, like, our our big thing that we're always fighting about and whatnot. And um, some years pass by. Eventually, I have to get rid of the Volkswagen because we have a tiny human, and it is not safe to drive with a tiny human in the back of your Volkswagen van because there's, you know, no engine to protect your legs, so you could just die fine um so we get rid of the volkswagen we you know get another automatic because driving with a child in the car is also an olympic event for many of you who know that um and we decide we're going to go to ireland because let's go to ireland let's go see our friends let's go have a family vacation we'll take the kid it'll be great and we're like looking at what car to rent because i wasn't really sure i wanted to navigate public transportation all the way to the west side with a four-year-old all the things and my buddies who are in Ireland say, well, you can't get an automatic. Like, that's 
what American tourists do. And I'm like, that's fine. We'll get a stick shift. It's fine. Um, so when you're in Ireland, um, you're on the other side of the car, right? And you drive on the left. And also the roads are about this big. Um, so everything is really, really, really close to you. But I'm like, cool, that's fine. We can get a stick shift. It's fine. Um, so we're there a couple days, jet lag, and we go to the airport, you know, cause you go back to the airport to get the stick shift. And I get in this thing and <laughs> the gears are over here. <laughs> Okay, so your pedals are the same, your clutch is still on the left, your gas is still on the right, getting the brakes still on the it's, you're still like, you're kind of, but it's, you know, and reverse is, and this one reverse was behind fifth. Anyway, I couldn't drive it. I couldn't get it out of first. It also did this thing, okay, to my, you know, um, the cars these days like shut off, like, you know, electric cars, we don't do this in America, but the, they just shut off. Um, and if you know, when you're driving a stick shift, if you're not doing it properly and the engine just shuts off, then you have to like return it on and do the whole clutch thing again. And I kept lurching the car. <laughs> I couldn't make it happen. And at one point I'm like sobbing and screaming and I'm in the right lane facing the way the Americans face and there's cars coming at us. And my spouse <laughs> says, it's time for you to get out <laughs> from behind the driver's seat. And get your ass in the back. <laughs> and I did. Not gracefully, but I did. And um, he gets in, and all of a sudden, he can drive a stick shift because he's left-handed. <laughs> um, so it's not a long story, but it's a fun one. And uh, to this day, should you see us on the street, you can always give him a thumbs up and be like, yeah left-handed stick shift, and he will know exactly what you're talking about, and he'll give you a high five. There you go. Stick shift. This story is from Chauncey Dyer Drummond. Over the years, my dad has always kind of told me since I was a kid, we're always sort of just waiting for the other shoe to drop with you. I've heard that, like, people told me, like, It's kind of an intense statement to make, maybe, but I really can't blame him because it's true. I also am always waiting for the other shoe to drop with me, and I never quite know what it's going to be till it happens. Um, One of the more sort of... The more dramatic times, maybe, I'd say, that one of these happened, I was going on a trip with my parents to Ashland, Oregon. We love it down there. We'd go see the Shakespeare Festival, um... I think at this point, we probably hadn't been there in maybe about six or so years. So we also were going, I was 16 at the time, so we were starting to go on like college tours and stuff, and I was really interested in going to the school that was there. So we go, we tour the school and everything, we go to the festival, it's so great. Inevitably, my mother and I have some sort of fight that only mothers and daughters know how to have. So... <laughs> True to form, you know, we get angry. We go our separate ways. My mom goes, finds a spot to sit down. I'm like, I'm going for a walk. I'm going for a walk. So I start walking around town. And at this point, I'm like, okay. Like many other little suburban white girls that don't have a lot else going on in their lives, I had a penchant for shoplifting. So I walk into a store. I go in. I... I'm really stressed out, and I'm like, you know what, I just, I need to just do something. I, gra- I go in, I grab this wooden flute. I played flute for about nine years. And I go in, I get this thing, 
the weirdest possible choice I could make for shoplifting something because it was so long. It's a, it's a full wooden flute. So it's really long. So I shove it up my sleeve and I like pull my sleeve down and I'm kind of, I'm walking and I'm realizing, oh shit, this arm doesn't match. So I'm, now I'm kind of going like this. I'm like, oh. So I get back to the car. I'm like, okay, my parents and I, we were going to see a show that night. I think as you like it or something, I don't remember. But we go to the car. I'm like, oh, I just got to drop off my jacket. And my parents, they, they clock that. I'm walking like that. You, you see it from all the way down the block. So I go up to the car. I'm like, oh, I just got to go around the corner and just put my jacket in the car. So you know, I put my jacket on the floor. And I walk to the back of the car. And I just see my dad. He knows exactly what's up. He goes back to the back seat, unwraps my jacket, and goes, what is this? pulls out this long flute. It's like, where'd you get this? I was like, at the shop. He's like, with what money? I was like, you got me. I didn't have any money. So like the really fantastic parent my dad is, he goes, all right, well, we're going back to the store. Um, You're going to bring this to them, tell them that you stole it. And just whatever they decide to do is whatever they decide to do. You live with that. I'm like, okay. So we go back and I'm hanging my head. I'm all sad and ashamed and embarrassed. I tell them, and the lady at the store is really nice, and she's like, okay, well, usually we'd issue a cite- we'd have the police come, issue a citation, but, you know, you came back, whatever, we'll let it go. I'm really thankful because I'm across state lines, so that would have gotten a little messy for me, but um, my parents, so we dropped that off. My parents, they're just absolutely devastated. So they pack up the car, we go back to the hotel, we pack up the car, we turn around, we leave that night. We drive from Ashland up to Bellingham, which is about 10 hours if, 10 hours if traffic is good. So I'm sitting there in the back of the car, realizing that my parents are the kind of people that, as I said, they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop with me. So they realize that there's, if this is what they caught, there's probably a lot more going on. And so they're going to go home. They're going to tear my door off the hinges, flip everything, you know, find everything. I'm thinking, because I'm like, well, you know, for this whole 10-hour car ride, they don't know what they're coming home to, but I know all the hood rat shit I'd been up to that summer that I definitely should not have been doing. So we get home. I'm kind of lagging behind. I'm stressing out. My parents, they run in. They run down. I lived in like this little finished basement thing. I run downstairs to the basement. And sure enough, I hear them just like yelling. I don't know about what. I was just kind of hanging back, letting it all unfold. Um, and so I, I get downstairs. And sure enough, you know, they've flipped the mattress. There's some weed under there. They've gotten into the closet. That's where I'm starting to get a little anxious because I know what they're going to find next. They're going to find that I had actually been shoplifting a lot more for maybe the two months before that. So they find these Tupperware bit or these big Rubbermaid bins that I had. I had four of them. And they open them up. And they're looking in there. They're expecting to find just like some stuff that, you know, a teenage girl would want to have, you know, the, you know, really cool clothes or something like that. But they open it up and inside I have like toothpaste and deodorant 
Um, you know, maybe there was like a thing of perfume. Like there, it was stuff like that. Um, but mostly just toiletries. And <laughs> it's been long enough now. I can say not so proudly that I did circle felony amount a few times. It was quite extensive. Um, so <laughs> my my parents they look at this and they're going, "What the hell? This the like." That's not what we expected to find here. So they start kind of stepping back. So they're like, okay, this little past having her walk into Target with these, you know, essentially bins of things and saying, hey, I took this. You going to call the cops um, and just hope for the best. So my dad, he gaps online. He starts kind of looking like, what should I do with this? They decide they're going to donate all the items and then just like try and figure out what the heck is going on with me. So... They take me to a psychiatrist, and I end up going to see this guy for a while, Dr. James, super awesome, and I had been diagnosed with OCD for a few years at that point, but that's when I started learning just how extensive it was and how it kind of weaves into different things like being stressed out about the future and, you know, compulsive actions and stuff. So I I spent some time with Dr. James, and it's, it's been a good 10 years. So, thank you. This story is from Caleb Van Ryswick. Here I am, standing in the middle of a busy parking lot. It is late December. The sky is a classic Pacific Northwest gray. It has started to snow. In front of me is my new car, no more than nine weeks from purchase. The rear bumper is crumpled and hanging off at an angle. Behind me, I hear a booming voice cut clear through the air in a questioning but also demanding tone. Did you just hit my truck? Let us uh, go back to October and figure out how we have ended up in this moment right here. Um, (laughs) For context, I am an incredibly frugal individual. My father immigrated here to the U.S. in his early teen years, um, and both him and my mother worked full-time throughout my entire childhood and still work full-time to this day. So uh, generational wealth was never in the cards for me. However, I did learn how to stretch a dollar, and I became an incredibly uh, resourceful person. So when the opportunity presented itself for me to retire my 2006 uh, red Suzuki Forenza station wagon, or um, the little red rocket Sputnik, as I so (laughs) uh, admiredly uh, referred to it as, um, I did not make that decision lightly. I um, was in a bit of a transition point in my life. I had just landed a new job at a social work clinic. I was working in wraparound services. I was really psyched about that. Um, I was planning a move into the city to be closer to my new job. And I had finally become uh, financially stable enough in my life to justify a larger purchase like a new car. So I did all the research. I looked at loan providers. I looked at different makes and models and decided uh, Honda HRV. That sounds great. That fits my lifestyle needs. 
Um, it's modest but necessary. Uh, and I, I bought the car. And I did not lose too much sleep over it. Um, Sputnik 2.0. <laughs> so the next order of business, of course, is figuring out what to do with uh, the OG Sputnik. Um, I thought about doing the whole Facebook Marketplace route, um, the Craigslist uh, whole situation there. However, I was very aware that the car itself was, it was old. It was an older car. It had many, many miles on it. Um, and it would be quite an investment uh, for the buyer up front for just like longevity of use. Um, so I didn't feel too right about just selling it to someone as is. Uh, so I decided to either donate it so it'd be scrapped or give it to someone I knew who really wanted a cool project or just a car that ran you know, from point A to point B. Um, it was at this time that a family member contacted me stating that they had been contacted by a family friend who had a granddaughter that needed a car, basic car, just to get them around. So I met up with this young woman. We talked about the car. I was uh, incredibly transparent about, you know, the mechanical needs. It was a project, but it would get you where you needed to go um, if you're willing to put in the time and effort to, you know, maintain it properly. Um, we drove the car around. She asked me all the questions, and we agreed on a, a price that felt realistic but also reasonable for her financially. We signed everything, and she drove away. Um, several weeks go by, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I start getting text messages, phone calls, voicemails from this young woman um, telling me that the car's broken. She's like, I don't know what to do. It's broken, and help me out. Uh, so this is kind of where um, my counselor brain clicks on a little bit, right? So there are two paths I could take of, of decisions here. I could either say nothing at all, ignore the, the messages, and think to myself, well, yeah, you bought a used car. I'm sorry if you did not you know, put the time or effort into it, then it probably is broken. Um, I did not do that. I put on my lovely little empathy glasses, and I responded. I said, hey, this is the mechanic I took it to previously, um, you know, call them up, see what might be going on. I also gave them some insight as to what I thought might be happening with the car, and that was it. Several more weeks pass, and all of a sudden, the text messages start up again. Text messages, phone calls, voicemails, but this time, not only to me, but to several members of my family as well. So this is starting to pop up some risk assessing in my mind, right? I'm like, okay... <laughs> There's some red flags here, and it becomes clear to me that um, I am interacting with someone that is in survival mode, right? So this individual is demanding I compensate her for the car. Um, she's asking for compensation for the repairs she put into it, and she's asking for reimbursement for the Uber, drives, Uber rides that she had to take while the car was not drivable. And if I did not give her the money, then I would be taken to court, and there was uh, the threat of a legal battle here, right? So survival mode. She's trying to get some needs met. Um, and being aware, <laughs> uh, having worked with individuals who need a little more assistance in navigating crisis situations, I think to myself, okay, path of least resistance. What can I do here to avoid this becoming a full-on spiral legal battle, which I didn't think would actually hold up in court, but that would be a waste of time and money. And I had no financial position to enter any of that. So, I offer to take the car back and provide a stipend. I know, I know. I, 
But remember, path of least resistance, and I was willing to die on this hill. So <laughs> I offered to take the car back and provide a stipend for their troubles. We agree on a date, a time, and a location, a public place, a bank. <laughs> I show up to the bank on the date and time we agreed. She arrives. Uh, not only does she arrive, but her father also arrives. And he's coming in hot, right? He's uh, Papa Bear. He's saying we're not settling for any type of offer. I, my, my lawyers are already involved, and we're taking this directly to some type of legal proceeding. Um, I am able to talk to the young woman individually, since you know she is the owner of the car, and she purchased the car. Um, and I, I say to her, hey, I think we can, we can come to some sort of agreement. And we do, um, albeit more than what I was willing to offer initially. However, I was very solution-focused, and I just wanted the situation to be done, done with, right? So we agree on the, the offer. Um, we sign all the paperwork. I take the money right out then and there. We're in a bank, hand it to them, and I get out of there. Um, <clears throat> I'm sitting in my car uh, just decompressing for what was probably uh, an uncomfortable and potentially suspicious amount of time just sitting in my car in front of a bank. Um, <laughs> I finally get the energy to, to leave that place. So I, I put my car in reverse, um, and I back out, and it all happened so fast. It was in one motion, I also hear a loud crunch bang. Yeah. So I, here I am, right, standing in this busy parking lot, looking at my, my new car that now has a crumpled rear bumper hanging off at an angle, um, realizing I have backed directly into the parked car behind me. Um, my first and only car accident, by the way, um, and that is also when that clear, booming voice comes, comes right through the, the parking lot, right? That, did you hit my truck? Um, and I start my apologies, and I turn around, and I realize the voice... <laughs> the voice is coming from the father of that young woman who had just threatened to take me to court for the last hour or so. Um, and he's reasonably not, not pleased, right? Um, so he's coming in hot yet again saying, I, I want money right now. Like, go take money out. I'm, I believe it's going to be this much for repairs. By the way, it was like a, a paint scratch that I was able to buff out on his car. Meanwhile, of like a bumper hanging off of mine. I digress. Um, so yeah, he's saying, I want money right now. I come to find out that the truck is brand new. He bought it um, two days prior, um, and he made it very clear that it's a new truck. Um, the sensors on the front bumper alone are hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I didn't know there were sensors on the front bumper of a truck. Um, but he's saying he, he wants compensation right here, right now, cold hard cash in his hand. I managed to squeak out words um, <laughs> of, of s- some semblance, I don't know, um, but stating that, no, I'm going to let insurance handle it because that's what insurance is for. Um, and I, I signed an incident report. I haphazardly put my bumper back on my car, and I just I drove out of there and, and did my best to deflect any and all unpleasantries. He uh, hurled, hurled my way. Um, and I got out of there, not looking back. I was laying in my bed that evening, staring at the ceiling, uh, probably spiraling, um, just, again, decompressing uh, thoughts reeling about the events of the day, but also the last several weeks. Um, and I was thinking to myself, yeah, I, I mediate crisis every day, right? Um, but it's not every day that I'm mediating myself out of a crisis. 
And uh, a phrase that I hear quite often ring through the halls of my workplace uh, clicked in my brain. Um, we're always hearing and we're always saying, empathy without boundaries is self-ruin. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so to wrap up my little cautionary tale here, um, if you ever find yourself in a similar situation where you're continuing to pour from an empty bucket, right? Your empathy bucket, just not there. Uh, remind yourself that a need is not always a call. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for our third episode of the Bellingham Story Hour podcast. Every month, there are workshops that you can join on the first and third Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at the New Prospect Theater in Bellingham, Washington. You can sign up for those workshops at bellinghamstoryhour.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at bhamstoryhour and also on Facebook, Bellingham Story Hour. These stories were recorded live by Ron Warner at New Prospect Theater in downtown Bellingham, Washington. This podcast was recorded at Champion Street Sound Studios and was edited by Danielle Morgan Sharon and Paul Turpin. The music from this podcast is from the album Fiction by Anna Arvin. You can find that on Bandcamp and also on I Love You Avalanche.com. Just kindness find me.